Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word and for your guidance. We ask you to bless us as we look at your word and study your word and show us what you would want us to see through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Isaiah chapter 63. We're going to continue in this. We started looking at the power of God and how he is going to rule everything. And in starting at verse 7. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them, according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. But they revealed and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. We're going to stop there for just a moment, because here the prophet saying, I will mention your loving kindness or your grace, your mercies. Now, this is something that we as people should be doing, mentioning the goodness of God. And very important, and I talk about this a lot, we need to mark off the things that God is doing. And remember what he does, because it is easy for us as human beings to forget. Now, we are very serious people that forget what has been done in the past and just look at, what have you done for me lately? And we don't mean to, we don't necessarily plan it, but it is human nature to kind of forget the past. And even when we look back on the past, we usually look at the past with rose-colored glasses. Everything was good back then. Either that or extremely bitter. I mean, it's one extreme or the other usually. But in general, we look back at something and go, well, it was really much better back then. When we were in the middle of it, it was miserable, it was terrible, and we didn't really like it, and there were all kinds of troubles. But we look back at it and say, that wasn't too bad. I found that when I look back at restaurants. You know, when I first moved to this area, I worked in a restaurant. I had forgotten about all the things I didn't like about restaurants. I had only remembered the things that I liked about restaurants. And you know, we do this kind of thing when we're looking. We forget the benefits that God has blessed us with, which is why I recommend to us that we keep some kind of journal, some kind of recording of what God has done for us. So that when Satan attacks us and we forget, we can go in here and say, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and praise the Lord. You know, and it's not this idea of just speaking good things. You know, it's not positive thinking, but it is true that when we speak positive things and lift up God, it changes the way we think. And it's very important that we get into this and it says, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed upon us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. We are his children. God has bestowed great goodness on us. Now, we may not recognize all of his great goodness. Sometimes his great goodness comes in the, in the idea of hard troubles that put us at the right place to minister to somebody at the right time, and it took God causing pain and suffering to get us there. You know, some of the movies we've watched have people doing just that. They end up at just the right place to minister to somebody, but everything bad seemed to have happened to them before that. 
And this is something that God is saying, I've got great mercies for you. And because we need to see things from his perspective, which is why when we get to heaven and we see things from his perspective, we'll go, oh, that's why. That's what you did. How many people have died in the name of Christ as martyrs so that others would be motivated to follow God? You know, we still read about them. Fox's Book of Martyrs. We still see it over and over, even in our generation, that people are dying for God and people are watching them die for God and being motivated to seek God. And we go, gee, God, they died. What's good about that? Well, the really good thing is they went to heaven. And somebody else got saved by them going to heaven. That is one even more wonderful. You know, we need to be able to say, God, what is it that you, are you putting me through suffering so that others can see and be motivated to serve you? And that might be what it is. I serve God and I suffer and I stay focused on God and people look at it and say, wow, they've got something. They've got something real. Now, if I'm grumping and griping all the time and complaining, it's not a good testimony. And I failed that test. But God will still make something good out of that. Because then when he does get hold of me and I repent and I come back to him, the people will see that God forgives people. Now, either way, in the long run, the testimony wins. I either am a great example, and people say I want to be like them, or I fail, I repent, and God puts me back into place, and then going, I, I want to be, I want to follow a God that forgives and, and brings people back. Now, either way, it's a good thing. It's a winning thing for us, and we want to keep that in mind. He says, for he says, surely these are my people, children that will not lie. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. He says, it's his children who won't lie. This is definitely God looking at us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, because even the Israelites were bad most, more often than they were good. Uh, but I love this next thing in verse 9. For in their affliction he was afflicted. Jesus went to the cross to bear our sins. And this is something that is quite interesting. Every sin of the world was put on Jesus on the cross. This is something people have to get hold of in their mind. He didn't take most of the sins. He didn't take the sins of only those people who were going to accept him. He took the sins of the world upon himself. The only sin that people will get punished for now is the rejection of Jesus Christ. When they stand at the white throne judgment, the only thing God's going to care about, what did you do with my son? And if you're standing at the white throne judgment, you're guilty. For us, we'll have stood at the bema seat of Christ and got our rewards because we accepted Christ. This is the important thing. He bore our afflictions upon his body. When people go, God doesn't know what it's like to be whatever, they don't know what they're talking about. Jesus, convicted of a crime he did not do, people getting perjury against him, having a kangaroo court against him, having the deck stacked against him, he knows exactly what it is to be attacked and persecuted and, and, and be falsely accused. Even before that, he's being accused of every place he goes of disobeying God and being a sinner even though he was without sin. Because by the Jews, the Pharisees and scribes, he wasn't a good guy. 
He didn't follow all of their man-made rules. And Jesus purposely would violate their man-made rules just to irritate them. Yeah. And sometimes it's kind of fun to just violate man-made rules that aren't rules so that people can be irritated. And Jesus did it frequently. The disciples walking through the cornfield on the Sabbath day, just grabbing handfuls of corn, uh, of wheat, and eating it. And everyone, what are they, they're working. Jesus says Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Yeah. They're not working. He goes, all they're doing is eating some grain. They didn't, they didn't do any work. They didn't cook it. They didn't, they didn't uh, crack it. They just grabbed a head of, of grain and ate it. And Jesus said they didn't work. And, you know, this is kind of interesting because even we as Christians sometimes we look at somebody and go, well, what are you doing that for? That's not the way you're supposed to do it. That's not what, you know, because we like to have man-made rules. Why? Because we feel good about it. God, if I can just set you up as a bunch of rules, I'm going to be okay. God, if you're just a whole bunch of rules, I can keep rules. And we can't keep the rules either, but, you know, but our thinking is, if I just have a stack of rules, I can obey the rules. And if it's a rule I can't keep, I just throw it away and, and try to have a bunch of rules that I can keep. And God says, your rules aren't anything. Your rules aren't what make you righteous. Your rules aren't what make you good or bad. And he purposely, he was afflicted with all of our pain. And it says, the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity he redeemed them. Jesus went to the cross because of his love. And we said this over and over again. It was not the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was not the threat of Roman brutality that put him on the cross in the first place. It was he had told the Father, I'm going to go to the cross and die for mankind, and he did it. We don't fully understand the love that took him to the cross. As he told Pilate, you don't have any power. I could call 10,000 legions, uh, 10, 10 legions to come against you. That was more legions than Rome had. And he goes, I can, call, I can call more than the entire might of Rome to come to my deliverance. And that impressed, impressed uh, Pilate because Pilate's looking at him going, most people are afraid to die. You're embracing this and saying that, that it's your choice. And it was Jesus' choice. At any time, he could have called out to the Father and said, Father, they're not worth it. Now, he wouldn't because he'd already given his word. And we got to understand, even though he could have said no, he had given his word. So in essence, he couldn't say no. All right, so it's kind of a two-way street. He was God. It wouldn't have been wrong for him to say no, except that he had told the Father he would do it. And being God, he was going to keep his word. No matter what, he was going to die for us. And the pain that was involved with it, the physical pain that was involved with it, the mental and, and spiritual pain that was involved in it. He went through great pain, and the worst pain was being separated from the Father. And he did it because of love. That is love I can't even picture when it comes down to it. This is why when God teaches us love, he shows us what it means to be like him and to express love. And the more we learn about love, the more we learn that we don't know how to love. And the, more, the better I get at love, the more I realize I don't know anything about love and I keep getting better and I still don't know anything about love. 
I get better at forgiveness and I still don't know what it means to forgive compared to God. Because God is infinitely more than we are. He gives us strength to go through each day and we still don't know what strength is. We think we're getting strong. We go, okay, God, I've got it. And he shows us that we don't have anything without him. For I can do nothing without Christ. And he goes, okay, you think you're strong? Let me see how strong you are without me then. You think you're that good? Let's, let's watch you fall flat on your face. And hopefully you don't fall in a way that really hurts you. But God says, you think you're strong? Let me show how unstrong you are without me. And this whole idea that he loves us, and in his pity, he redeemed Israel, and he bore them and carried them. This is the beauty of what God does for us. He carries us. He is our support. He is the staff we lean on. When people go, God is nothing but a crutch for you, I'm going, no problem, I'll, I'll take that. He's an awfully good crutch. I need a crutch. I need that strength. I need something to lean on. Everybody does. Even the person who thinks that they're a self-made man or woman has a crutch that they're leaning on. What is it? Their own pride. And their pride is going to fall down and break underneath them at some point. Before pride goes, before destruction or before the fall. If somebody is leaning on their own pride, they are going to fall and they're going to fall big. Because then they're going to fall in the, in the way that will make their pride look totally empty that it is. Which is why we stand with God. We hold on to God. We say, God, I'll, I'll hold on to you for all I'm worth. The picture of the child holding their parent's hand. I don't want to get lost. If your child gets temporarily lost, in like in the store and they get in the wrong aisle, that child holds on to your hand for all they're worth, for, at least for, for a couple hours. They don't want to get lost again. We need to keep that idea. We, we have been lost. We are no longer lost. Let's hold on to God for all we're worth and not forget that lost feeling. The problem is the longer we walk with God, sometimes we forget what it means to be lost. And we start thinking, I've got it all put together. I'm somehow better than everybody else that didn't, didn't follow God. And we don't do it on purpose. It's human nature. It's human pride. It's the lust of the flesh that says, I'm, I'm good. God, you're lucky you had me because I, you know, look at all that I get done. And God says, let's show you, let's humble you a little bit. And here he says that God will bear them up and even though he's carrying them in verse 10, but they rebelled. <laughs> you know, they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and fought against them. Now, this does not mean he is their enemy, but God will, if we rebel against him, say, okay, you want me to pretend to be your enemy and be like your enemy? I will make life miserable for you. And a lot of this is the consequences we bear is he steps back and says, okay, here's your consequences. Nothing's worse than to have God step away. If he's your crutch and you got proud and he steps away, if you've ever seen anybody lose their crutch, or worse yet, you see it on TV shows where somebody kicks the crutch out from under them, and then they're really dependent on that crutch, they fall. And God says, you want to stand, you don't want me to be your crutch? I'm going to take your crutch away. Let's see what, how you're going to do without your crutch. And we fall flat 
on our face and hopefully repent. Sometimes we wallow around in, in despair when we fall flat on our face, roll around in the mud a little bit, grumble and gripe to God about having fallen, and hopefully eventually we repent. And he says, okay, fine, I'm going to pick you up and lift you back up. But God is our support. He is our fortress. He is the wit, our strength. Verse 11, then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him, that led him by night by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make themselves an everlasting name, make himself an everlasting name, that led them through the deep as a, as a horse in the wilderness, and they should not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest, and so did you lead your people. Go make yourself a glorious name. What ends up happening when we turn away from God? We start complaining, God, where are you? God, you've disappeared. It's kind of interesting. We go around the corner from God, and we complain, God, you disappeared. We leave God, and we complain, God, you've disappeared. And we ask this very question, where is he that did these things in the past? In the book of Judges, we see over and over somebody raising up and God bringing them up and they go, God, where is the miraculous God who took, you know, did all these miraculous things in Egypt? Where is the God that walked us through the Red Sea? Where is the God that brought us through the, the Canaan, uh, into Canaan across the Jordan River and parted the river? Where is the God that broke down the walls of Jericho? Same place he's always been, waiting for us to come to him. Now, it is really interesting that we as human beings walk away from God and then complain that he walks away from us. And God is standing over there saying, I'm over here. Come join me. And in our arrogance, we go, God, I'm over here. Come join me. And the one thing about it is God isn't moving to join us. He's already done that when he went to the cross. He did his part. He expects us to come to him through the straight gate, through the narrow gate and walk to him and through that door. And once we're there, he says, I'm your shepherd, you follow me. Now that does not mean he's not gonna come and rescue us. The good shepherd comes and rescues the lost lamb. And then they carry that lamb around for a while until that lamb learns to be obedient. But the lamb has to want, to be, has to want some desire to be found. And most lambs want to be found. If they get out of sight of the shepherd and out of the sight of the flock, they get very noisy. They make a lot of noise trying to find the rest of the flock and for the shepherd to find them. They're not real hard to find. Uh, if you've ever been around sheep and lambs, you, you hear them bleeding when they get out of sight, you know, and they're listening for the rest of the flock to try to find them. And they're only, they're only about two feet away behind a bush, but they get, they get panicked and try to find it. And they make a lot of noise trying to find them, and that's how we are. When we repent, we make a lot of noise before God and say, God, help, 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 help. I, I'm lost. I, 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 can't, I can't find you. I can't see you. I'm in this dark spot. I, I went to the water with flowing water and I fell down. My, my, my wool is wet and I can't get back up. Yeah. 
all these different things that happen, and God is saying, I'm right here. The people say, where is he? Where is he that led them through the sea, the, the shepherd of his flock? And it's he that put his Holy Spirit within him. Where is God? Have you ever been in the place where you say, God, where are you? And you don't have to go deep into sin to be asking God, where are you? All you've got to do is stop reading your Bible for a day or two, stop praying for a couple days, maybe miss a couple services in a row, and all of a sudden it feels like God has just gone a long ways away. And you're going, God, where did you go? God, I, haven't, I don't feel you. In the middle of a test, sometimes we get into this very place. God, where's the God that rescues everybody? Where, where are you, God? You're supposed to be walking me through this problem, and I don't see or feel you, and God's saying, this is your test. Are you going to trust? Are you going to look for me? And unfortunately, so many times we try to do things in our own strength. I got this one, God. I can, I can handle this one. And don't ever get to the place where you can say you can handle it. It doesn't work. I've done it too many times in my lifetime. And probably will do it in the future. <laughs> so we want to be careful. He says, but led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. When God does great things, it is for his glory. And this is one thing. If you're watching somebody who claims to be doing something for God, and they are claiming the glory for it, this is the problem with a lot of faith healers. They start, a lot of times they forget that it's God doing the work and somehow start thinking somehow that it's them. And they don't really come across and say it, but the words they say, you've got to come and see me. Why? <laughs> it's God's power, isn't it? You've got to come and hear me preach to get this healing. Why isn't it God doing the work? This is very important. It, I don't ever worry about anybody coming to chloride and preaching the gospel message here because it's God who does the work, and if God says we need more people, great. If he wants to replace me, great. Because it's his work. It's not my work. If it's my work, I'm going to get jealous. And, I'm, you know, and I hope that I don't get jealous because it shouldn't be my work. I'm just a lump of clay that God is forming. And if I, th if I think I'm special, God's going to show me how special I am and knock me down and make sure that I don't think I'm special. And he has just little ways to do it. He, he will always knock us down when we get prideful. Now, if it's a small amount of pride, it'll just be a small knockdown. But if I get really big and proud and say, wow, you know, God, if it, this church just wouldn't be here if I wasn't here, I'd be out of the church real quick. God would make sure that I, got, I learned that it's not me building this church. It's him. If you get to the place where you think, God, you know, if it wasn't me doing whatever it is you're doing, and God, you're so wonderful, it's so wonderful you have me because nothing would be done if I, this wouldn't be done if I was doing, wasn't doing it. God will very quickly show you that it's not you. It is not you doing it. And he goes on with it. You led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. The beautiful thing, when God took the children of Israel through the wilderness... It says that their shoes did not wear out, their clothes did not wear out, their feet did not swell, they did not get sick. They, they were healthy as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 days being fed manna. 
I have no idea what manna was. I have no idea what the nutritional value of it, but it says they were all healthy. It probably was the perfect food. God gave it to them. And they did get tired of it after a while, and I imagine it probably would get tiring. I've worked in restaurants where I've gotten tired of the food at that restaurant. I worked at a steakhouse. I never in my wildest life dreams thought I'd get tired of steak. After about six months of having steak, every day, every day that I worked, I got tired of steak. Give me chicken. Give me, give me anything but steak. And I love steak with a great passion. I never thought I would get tired of it, but yet I can't imagine eating manna for 40 days. I hope that manna had different flavors depending on what God made it, you know, made it taste like, so it didn't taste like the same thing every day. Because that would also explain why they got to the place where they kind of despised manna. God, we've been eating this stuff for 40 years. You know, we want something different. Huh? It would be almost like eating honey. I don't know. It, it tasted like honey, so it probably tasted good. That's what they said. It tasted like honey wafer, so. But even now we get old after a while. And that was the big thing. You know, we miss. We miss the past. And the more we put the sin in a high place in our life, the easier it is to go back. This is why sin and the flesh must be crucified because given enough time, we forget the bad things about the sin. Given enough time, we forget that when we were drunk, there was a lot of bad things. It wasn't all just that feeling of euphoria when I was drunk and everything. It was the stupid things I did while I was drunk. The times I don't remember what I did, and my friends told me about all the fun I had as they were laughing at me. You know, the times that you got so stoned on your drugs that you couldn't remember a thing and you ended up waking up in the hospital or a police station. You know, how many times do we romanticize what the past was and we forget the negatives of our past? And that's a dangerous place to be because then it's like, oh, I kind of miss. I, you know, the children, we miss our, our garlic and our melons and our onions. Okay, you, you missed the food, but you were a slave. <laughs> they were making you work every day. Oh, well, you know, well, yeah, but the food was really good. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, we forget about this. We forget about the bad side of things oftentimes. And when we're doing that with sin and our past, it can get us into a lot of trouble. Because we can get wrapped up into something going, well, you know, it was really good back then. You know, life was really good. Why did you want out of it? If it was that good, why did you want out of it? How did, why did you get saved in the first place if it was that good? And if you're religious before you get saved, it could be even worse. You know, I remember when I went to church every single day. Every single night, every single day. I read my Bible every day. You know, I haven't been doing that lately, but God, you know, I remember back when I was religious. I was keeping all these good things. And God says, but it's all about me. It's all about me. And that's the good news on here. They're saying, God, where is the God that did all these things? At least they recognize he's the one who did it. But they're so far from God that they don't recognize that they have drawn away from him. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, he will set us free. The truth shall set us free. And this is important for us always to remember. When we first get saved, we recognize that we have been set free, hopefully. <laughs> but 
it is so easy to drift away from the truth, slide away from the truth if we're not careful, and forget what set us free, and start thinking, well, it was all about me. You know, I did lots of good things. I came to Jesus. I got baptized. I started going to church. I started going to the Bible studies. I started growing. Who made you grow? Hopefully, it was you being attached to Jesus. <laughs> Otherwise, your growth is not worth anything. I got changed because I got attached to Jesus. He is the vine. We are the branches. And when I forget that he's the, he's the root and the main source of my life, I'm in trouble. I'm going to think it's something about me. And he says, okay, I'm going to start pruning you. I'm going to start cutting away the dead parts, the self-righteousness, this arrogance that you have, this pride that you have. And he starts bringing out the scissors and the pruning knife and starts cutting away. And the thing about it is cutting hurts. <laughs> when God starts cutting things out of our life, it tends to hurt. And if you've ever cut yourself... When it's an accidental cut and where there's something sharp, it seems to be really quick and you barely notice it. But if you ever tried to cut away a hangnail or some dead skin that you know is, is pulled off partially and you know that it's going to hurt <laughs> and you know it's going to help but you don't want to cut it <laughs> because it hurts <laughs> almost more than having the hanging hangnail, and you cut that piece off, God is pruning us. And he cuts awfully close to things that hurt. And it's go, God, that hurts. <laughs> Don't do it anymore. It hurts. And you're going, it's for your good. Because if we leave that hangnail in there, it's going to catch, it's going to rip, it's going to do more damage. And we have to cut it away even though it hurts. And it may hurt for a little while after we've cut it away. But God says, I have this plan for you. I'm going to make it work. And he says that they did not stumble. As the beast goes down into the valley, the spirit of the Lord go, caused him to rest. So did you lead your people and make yourself a glorious name. God gives us rest. This is the beautiful thing about him. He is there to give us rest. He gives us peace that, understand, that passes understanding. He gives us great joy. He gives us rest. We are to walk by faith. We are to walk in the finished work of Christ where he says we are perfect. I saw a bumper sticker today, uh, and I didn't like the bumper sticker the way it was written, but it says, help me see myself the way my dog sees myself. But it made me wonder, the, the perfect bumper sticker would be, God, help me to see myself the way you see me. If we could just learn to see ourselves the way God sees us, and even more importantly, see others the way that God sees them, what would that do to our life? If we started really looking at ourselves the way God sees us, and others the way God sees us, what would that mean to the way I act about myself, the things I do, the things I will participate in? How would I treat others different if I really saw them the way God sees them? How would I treat people? How would I treat myself? It's very important for us to really get hold of who we are in Christ. 
Jesus died on the cross so that we would be considered complete in him because he sees us as complete. He sees us as perfect. This is hard for us to understand because we know we're not perfect. We need to start seeing ourselves by faith the way God sees us. We need to see others by faith the way God sees them. And God is not looking at us as incomplete beings. Because he is outside of time, he sees us as he says we will be. Now, when we get saved, he declares us perfect. And from that point on, he's dealing with us in the future. He says, this is my perfect child. That's all he sees is a perfect child. Is he aware that we're growing during this period on earth? Of course he is. He knows that we're growing. That's the Holy Spirit's job, to come down and help us grow. But as far as the Father is concerned, he goes, see my perfect children? Look at them. Look at them all lined up here in front of the throne. They're here worshiping me. Aren't they perfect? Look at that. Satan, look, Satan, look at all my perfect children. And Satan's saying, uh-uh. I, I, know, I know what they are. And God says, no, you don't. No, you don't. And the problem is, we don't know who we are either most of the time. We are the children of God, totally blessed, totally perfect in his sight. Even when we fail, even when we mess up in, in big ways, God says, this is still my perfect child. And he's waiting for that perfect child to return. Been rolling around in the pig, pig mess and the, and the pig mud, eating the pig food, and he says, oh, he doesn't come up and say, hey, you stink. Go get a bath before I talk to you. He's just like the father with his son, giving him a hug, even though he's dirty and filthy and probably stinks. And he says, this is my son. You're still my son. He gives him that hug. And then he says, clean him up. After he's given him the hug. Most of us as human beings say, go clean yourself up, and then I'll give you that hug. Go clean yourself up, make yourself presentable, and I then will give you your position in God's house. I'll give you the position in God's, God's respect when you've cleaned up. And God is saying, what is your problem? Why are, we dealing, why are you dealing with them different than I deal with them? Does that mean God does not punish the, the wrong? No. There's punishment. There's consequences. The prodigal son had major consequences. He didn't have an inheritance anymore. But he had a home. He had squandered his inheritance, but he had a home. There are people that are going to get to heaven having squandered their inheritance, but they have a home in heaven. Not many rewards, but they have a home. And by God's grace, their home will have furnishing. Their home will have decorations. Will it be as fancy as the people who have honored God most of their life? No, because that's part of their rewards. But you know, God isn't just giving them a basement to dwell in. Here's your cardboard box outside, of, outside, of the, outside the mansion. This is what you deserve. No. He's got a room for them. Maybe it's not five or six bedroom suite. But he's got, by, because of what Jesus did for you. And you know what? I could be far off base. Maybe everybody gets exactly the same thing. But they have rewards. What, are we, what the rewards are, we don't know. And this is the interesting thing. We don't know what a reward is in heaven. Oh, it's going to be completely, it's going to be so completely different than we think it is. All we, all we know is that Paul says there's going to be rewards, and we talk about rewards, and if there's rewards, I want them. If God is giving out rewards, 
I want whatever he's giving out. And the reward isn't just going to heaven. Yeah. And I'm hoping that everybody here is coming, welcome in good and faithful servant. You know, I hope everybody hears that. I don't know because it's all by God's grace, so I have a feeling everybody will. Yeah. On the same token on that, I'm going, is it something special? The only thing we do know is God has a special name for each one of us. And he may have a really special name for some people that have been good and faith, really good and faithful servants and have a really good and faithful name for them for all of eternity. But you know, no matter what we do, it's nothing in comparison to God. And we have to really understand that. We talk to people about how much good does it take to please God more than you could ever do? How much bad does it take to displease God? One thing. You know, it, we look at the example. The best person we can think of does not deserve God's grace. Whoever it is that you're thinking of is the very best person that you have ever known in all of history. The very worst person does not deserve God's punishment any more than anybody else. They're not worse by God's standard because we in our strength are bad in God's, by God's standard. Even the very best person is bad by God's standard. Not by human standard, they're good. But by God's standard, they are a fallen sinner that deserves hell. That is hard for us to understand. And we tend to treat each other by our human standards. There's good people and bad people. And God looks at us and says, all of you are bad without Christ. With Christ, we're perfect people. We have to begin to really understand that. And the more we get to understand that, it is going to affect the way we treat one another, the way we treat the lost. You know, they are captives. They cannot help but do the things they do. The lost person must sin. It is in their nature, and they're going to be what their nature does. The redeemed person has a new nature. We are a new creation in Christ. He gives us a brand new nature. And if we let God have his way, we must do what our new nature does, and that's obey God. Unfortunately, we have a sin nature still that wants to get in the way. But the more we start recognizing our old nature is dead, I have a new nature. I need to live according to that new nature and let God totally get rid of my old nature. And we all know what that's like when you start doing things that you always had no problem doing in the past and you get guilty. God, I've never had any bad feelings about doing this before. Why now? Because God says you have a new nature. You have a new nature that's not going to put up with that activity. And so we go, okay, God, I've got this. And then he makes us grow. And he takes something else that we've never had any problem with and says, okay, we've, we've crucified that. The new nature is going to take over that. God, I've never had any problem doing this in the past. And you're right. Your new nature is taking over. What a beautiful thing that it really is all God. It's not me struggling to be like him. It's not me struggling to be good. Because if it was, I'd get proud. And if I'm getting proud, it's because I've been doing it and not him. And he's standing there saying, I am the one that redeems you. I'm the one that makes you feel special. I am the one that's going to hold you up. 
Verse 15, look down from heaven and behold from the inhabitation of your holiness and, from, and of your glory, where is your zeal and your strength? The sounding of your bowels and the mercies toward me. Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us and Israel acknowledge us not, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. Your name is from everlasting. O Lord, why have you made us to err from your ways and hardened our hearts from your, from your fear? Remember for your servant's sake and the tribes of your inheritance. The people of your holiness have possessed it but a, but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down their sanctuary, your sanctuary. We are yours. You never bear rule over them. They are not called by your name. The beauty of this. God, look down from heaven. Behold our inhabitation and your glory. Where is your zeal, your jealousy? Do you realize that God is jealous of his people? In proper godly jealousy. There is proper jealousy that is involved. Being jealous and not wanting somebody to spend any time with another person is not good. But to be jealous of somebody trying to steal their heart from you, their affections from you, is proper. It can go too far, but God is jealous of us. When we are playing around with sin, when we're flirting around the edges of sin, God gets jealous for us because you don't know where it's headed. How many times have we played with that idea of a sin and fallen over the edge? You know, and too many times I've had people ask, well, how, you know, if I do this, am I sinning? The very fact that you're asking me that question tells me that the answer is yes. But even more importantly, it isn't how close to the sin can I get without sinning, my attitude should be, how far away from that sin can I get and run away so that I don't fall over the edge? The last place I want to see anybody playing is on the edge of a cliff. You know, I've told the story. When we went to the Grand Canyon, my kids had no fear of heights, neither do I. We weren't in the actual area with a wall where you could look over and have the wall protect you. We were on the raw cliff with all the, the gravel and everything. And they're playing right on the edge, looking over. And then get away from that edge. But Dad, it's fun looking down and go, there's too much gravel there. The footing is not sure. And then we turned it into a teaching area about don't, don't play around with sin. The gravel around the sin will pull us in. And we don't realize it. We want to be very careful and stay as far away from it as possible. And God is saying... He is going to, he's our strength. And it says your surrounding bowels, the sounding of your bowels, the rumbling of your bowels. When you get nervous, have you ever felt that rumbling in your stomach when you're nervous, when you're anxious? This is the picture. God being anxious in some way that we are not there, wanting us. Now, it's being humanized because that isn't anxious, obviously. But he's, he's desiring us. Get away from that sin. It's going to hurt you. Yeah. And this is sometimes when you're really training up somebody, sometimes you let them make mistakes. 
because human beings are stupid. We learn, hard, learn the lesson better from failing than we do from being obedient. And sometimes God says, well, if you have to fall on your face and skin your nose and your elbows and your knees, I guess I'll let you fall and skin your nose, your elbows and knees and pick you up and bandage them and put the oil on it and heal you up because you'll remember it a lot longer. There's been times in training managers and stuff, there's times when I've had to let them fall flat on their face as long as it didn't hurt the business. Why? Because that meant they might remember it just a little longer. What is it, and also you want to know, what is this person going to do when, they, when there's a hard time? You know, I want to see what they're going to do when the fire gets, gets going. Too many of us jump out of the frying pan into the fire and make it worse. And God's saying, I've got the frying pan here. I'm getting ready to take the frying pan off. What are you doing in the fire? Because we, God, I got hot. And God says, well, stay where I put you. And this is so important for us. And then it's very, 16 is interesting. Doubtless they, you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledged us not. Gentiles. Gentiles are God's people, not of Abraham's seed, not of his people. This is the beauty of it. Abraham was blessed by his own physical dependence of a great nation, and he gets blessed with spiritual descendants through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, bringing in a whole bunch of Gentiles as adopted sons and daughters for himself. He gets a great blessing and a greater kingdom than he ever realized. And of course, when Abraham dies, he doesn't even have but one son, so as far as he's concerned, he hasn't been blessed at all. And he's waiting by faith for God to give him what he said he was going to do. The beauty of this. We're, last night we were talking about David. David has told he's going to have a king sit on, the, on his throne. Solomon sat on the throne, and Solomon was told, because of your disobedience, your sons aren't going to last for, for a full dynasty. How many times does the blessing or the punishment not fall upon us? Ham sees Noah drunk and most likely naked and whatever else went on in that case, makes fun of him, and the curse falls on Canaan, his son. Why did the curse fall on Canaan? Because God knew that Canaan was going to be worse than his father. And goes, okay, your son is going to be, be the one that's going to get this judgment. Solomon, for the most part, I know you're going to repent, but Ray, uh, uh, your son Rehoboam is going to have this sin, the punishment fall upon him because of how bad he is going to be. God knows. He knows when, when our righteousness will pour out, and he knows when our disobedience will pour out. And the thing about our life is so many times our sin in the next generation is worse in that next generation than it was in our generation. And if it doesn't get changed by God, that next generation is going to be even worse than their generation. It can work for righteousness as well. Generation after generation, getting better, more righteous, following God. And here he's saying, Abraham didn't know you. I, Israel didn't recognize you. But our Redeemer has redeemed us. His name is forever. 
Jesus redeemed us. He bought us out of the slave market. Bluntly, just the way he did Israel. He let Israel go into captivity into Egypt, redeemed them. And then how many times did he redeem them thereafter? Over and over and over again, he redeemed them from the slave market that they put themselves into. God redeems us. And he's asking us not to go back into the slave market. Don't go after whoring after other idols and, and turning away from them. But when we do, he goes right back to the market and says, oh, that's my child, I'm buying them back. It's my child, I'm buying them back. It's my child, I'm buying, buying them back. And for every time we do that, we bear the marks of consequences upon our, upon our spirit. There's always consequences for everything we do. And we've got to really understand that. There's consequences good for good we do, and there's consequences for bad we do. And some of those consequences actually fall upon our spirit and our soul. Probably to bear, even though we're going to be perfect in heaven, there'll be consequences that lie into that, at the very least, in the reward department. But God says, I had so many more rewards for you if you had just been obedient. I don't think God's going to say you're a loser or anything else, but I do believe he says, here's your, here's your, here's your rewards. And there may even be a tear in his eye saying, I had so much more for you. I had so much more I wanted to give to you. He's not going to say we're, we're losers. He's not going to say we were bad. But, he's going, but I can almost picture there was so much more. I, I had so much more to give to you if you had just been obedient. And I don't care how good we are. We're not going to have everything God wanted us to have because none of us are perfect in our walk with God, which is why he's not going to call us losers because it's all by grace. It's all by his mercy. The fact that we have anything at all is his grace and his mercy. And he's going to go, all right, here's my mercy is not going to give you what you deserve, but here's my grace. All the riches of heaven are ours. What does that mean? I have no idea. It means we've got a beautiful place in heaven. How it's decorated is probably got to do with our rewards, but we have a beautiful, rich home. And it could be possible that everybody has the same nine-room nine room mansion. It's just how well is it decorated. Yeah. And even that, all the basics are going to be there because of his grace. God has grace. We deserve nothing. And the more we realize that, the better off we're going to be. What are rewards? We don't know. Jesus said that he was going to reward them by making rulers over many cities. I don't know what it means to rule over anything in heaven. What are we ruling over? I don't know. You know will there be another world where he starts all over and we're ruling over that world like the angels do over this world? I don't know. Will that world have dominion over us <laughs> at some other future time? I don't know. We're Jesus' bride. I don't picture that, but could it be? We don't know anything about what God has in store. All we know is that he promised us it's going to be perfect. And you know what? We'll be happy with whatever we have. The angels in heaven are happy with their lot. They've chosen to follow God, and that means they're going to be our servants in heaven. They're happy with their lot. You know, and going to be following that. And then it says, 
why have you made us err from your ways and hardened our hearts with, from your fear? Return your servants' sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Here, this idea of God hardening the heart is the same as when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And he said, no, I'm not going to let your people go. No, I'm not going to let your people go. And then after that, it said, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was already inclined to harden his heart. When God hardens somebody's heart, it's because they keep saying no to him. One of the best places to get a hard heart, I heard uh, Greg Laurie said, is in church. You hear the invitation of God so many times. And even for Christians, come and serve me. No. I want you to serve me. No. Come and serve me. No. Come and serve me. No. After a while, God says, okay, fine. I am not going to have you serve me. You have hardened your heart. I'm not going to let you turn to me. Don't ever let your heart get hardened so bad that God then hardens it even more. It's miserable. It's a miserable place to be. When God hardens your heart and no longer calls, no longer beckons to you. I'm not saying you've lost your salvation, but he's saying your fire is gone. Your desire is gone because you've said no too many times. I believe if you were really to repent, you could get it softened again. But if God hardens it, probably not. Because God's going to go, okay, you've gone too far in this area. I put somebody else in their place. Because if you say no to God too many times, he's going to put somebody else in that place. God, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not. God says, fine, I need this person saved, so here they go. I'm going to put somebody in their place. You were my first choice. You were the one that was supposed to do it. Could we then now go and try to get that person saved? Nope. Our heart is hardened in that area. So I think if we go too far with our nose and God hardens it, it's not towards salvation, but God says, you've said no too many times. This person's life depends on it or this, this ministry's life depends on, on somebody filling it. Your answer is no. Hardened. Now, could God harden it? Soften it? He's God. He can do what he wants. But I do believe that if God hardens that heart in that area, I don't think he's going to turn our heart completely away from him. But it could be, God, I know you want me to do this. God, I know you want me to do this, but I'm not going to do it. God, I know you want me to do this, but I'm not going to do this. God, I know you want me to do this, but I'm not going to do it. And there could be a time when God says, all right, done. I'm not going to ask you anymore. I'm going to put somebody else in it. In something like that, I don't think God's going to harden your heart towards sin. Here, I think he's saying, I am asking you to serve me. Now, we can harden our heart towards sin, but if we're his people, we can't really harden our heart towards sin and be God's people. So God is going to keep us, even though we harden it, God is going to keep hammering at that sin and cracking our hard heart. And it hurts. The more he hammers on our hard heart, the more the more it's going to hurt. But I think there's a time when he hardens a heart. And I think it has to do when we serve him. Because God's desire is for us to turn away from sin. Now, there could be a time when I have turned my heart so hard toward God 
that God says, okay, you are a terrible witness. I'm taking you home. All right? You made your heart so hard, you're not repenting. You're a bad witness. I believe there are sins that lead to death, and God says, you are going so far into this sin and away from me that I'm going to bring you home rather than have you keep going any further. But I do also believe there's times when God says, you've rejected my call. You've rejected my call. Now, and then people are going to tell me, when I, even when I say that, they're going to go, quote, God's gifts and calling are without repentance. But there is that time when I've rejected, I've rejected, I've rejected, and God's moved somebody else in the, into, that, into that area. God, I just decided I'm not going to follow him. Now, God may have a secondary plan, and I'm sure he does. Well, you were supposed to do this ministry. You were supposed to be the, the missionary to that, that neighborhood. You weren't, so now I'm going to put you over here and see if you will obey in this area. There's always a plan that God has. There's always a plan B with God. When we soften our heart, we just lost what should have been because of a hard heart. And then he goes, the people of your holiness have possessed it but a little, and our adversaries have trodden it down. We are yours. You never bear rule over them. They are not called by your name. When somebody steps in and takes God's inheritance away, the prophet says, they're not yours. When Babylon came in and conquered the territory, God says, they're not your people. You know, they're not my people. I have not called them my name. I'm going to return my people when they repent. And this is the good news. God can make it work out. Going back to your idea, there could be a time when he just softens our heart and we finally repent and God does something with us. Maybe in something similar to what we refuse to do. And maybe he brings us in and says, this wasn't my first choice. I'm now putting you where you belong and putting this person where they, where they were supposed to. They stepped in for you. Now I'm going to put them where they belong. It could happen that way. God is God. He's going to do what he wants. And I want to be very careful never to put God in a box. Because the minute you say God would never do something, he's going to show you that he does it. God, you would never tell somebody to, to be unequally yoked. And then we look at Hosea, told to marry a prostitute. Now, she was a Jew, so yes, he was okay. They weren't unequally yoked. But she was a prostitute. Esther was told, or was brought into being unequally yoked. She married a Gentile king. Not that she had a whole lot of whole, uh, choice in the matter, but she was unequally yoked. Now, it appears that Xerxes became soft toward God's people. He had Esther speaking to him. He had Mordecai talking to him. It appears that he got soft toward, toward the Jewish people. But that was one of those rare things. We don't go out hoping that we're going to evangelize our, our lost partner. It very rarely works. But be careful. The moment you say God cannot do something, there's a few things he can't do. He can't lie. He can't disown himself. He can't do evil. But as long as what you're saying God can't do isn't, isn't falling into one of those categories, he's going to jump out of whatever box that you've built around him and show you that you don't know him. He's going to go, oh, you think you know me? You think you can control me? And he'll step right out of the box and say, I'm over here. Come and get over here where I'm at. Don't, don't box God in. 
we want to be careful about this. God is God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. When we think we know his thoughts and we think we know his ways and we try to box him in because we know, we know how he thinks, he's going to tell us, that we, he's going to show us that we don't even have a beginning knowledge of who he is. And so let's continue following God for all that he is and trusting him because we are his and we are under his control. Lord, we just thank you for today. We ask you to bless this time as we look at you. We ask you to bless our walk with you. Show us who you are and how you want us to follow you and give us soft hearts that will always follow you and seek you and follow after you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.